Hello everyone, and welcome to a slightly odd entry on your podcast feed. So, to explain some backstory to why I'm posting an episode today. In the new year, my company was bought by another company. And then, about a month ago, the new company fired over half the staff, myself included. And this has meant that I've spent the last four weeks or so looking for a new job. And for a software engineer, that means many rounds. Most jobs have at least four rounds of interviews, technical tests, take-home projects, uh, before you actually end up getting a job. So it's basically been a full-time job looking for a new job. Honestly, I think I've worked far harder this past month than I had the previous month. But it's basically meant that I've got a little bit behind on the things that I needed to do for the podcast. And while I'm pretty sure that we're going to have proper episodes coming out again this week, I wanted to make sure that I fed the feed, so to speak, uh, that I posted something on our podcast feed today, just to make sure that you guys had something to listen to on your commutes, on your walks, and just to let you know that other episodes are coming. And so what I'm posting today is the audio of a YouTube interview, which I conducted about a month ago. So these are the half pint episodes. And this was an interview with Juliana Slager from Ballet 58. And you'll find out all of this in the interview itself. But that ballet company has adapted Till We Have Faces into a ballet. The ballet company is currently on tour. They have two performances left, one in Troy, Ohio on April 15th and another in Chicago on April 22nd. And my wife and I will actually be at that final Chicago performance. So if you're in the area, we'd love to see you come out. And if you find me afterwards or before, uh, not during, I will almost certainly have Pints with Jack stickers and coasters to give away. One last thing before I play the interview audio. I have had one or two people in the past ask me to post the audio of the YouTube interviews. If you have any strong feelings either way, please shoot me a message and let me know. You can find us on contact at pintswithjack.com or we have a form on the website. And with that, I hope you have a wonderful week and enjoy the interview. Cheers! Hello, and welcome to the Half Pint Sessions. These used to be called the Skype Sessions, but nobody uses Skype anymore. So I figured that since our talks are under half an hour and we are Pints of the Jack, this would be like a half pint. So a smaller amount, but still filled with goodness. And today we have back on the show a returning guest, Juliana, and I'll ask her to introduce herself. Juliana, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, David. Uh, yeah, my name is Juliana Rubio Slager, and I'm the artistic director and co-founder of Ballet 58, which is a ballet company that discusses themes of life and faith, um, and we're based out of Chicago. Wonderful. And you are here today because you guys have a new production, which is about to begin. Uh, would you mind just talking a little bit about that? And then what we'll do is we'll one o'clock back a little bit, talk a little bit about you, ballet, C.S. Lewis, and then we'll do a little bit more of a deep dive into this new production. But first of all, what is it that you are about to release? Yeah, so right now we're working on a project called Bare Face, um, which takes Till We Have Faces and kind of breaks it down into a physicality and breaks out a lot of the themes of the book 
which I'm sure many of the listeners know, also includes a lot from the four loves. So there's a huge inspiration from Till We Have Faces, but also a lot of information from the four loves going into this work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about this, particularly because you have a performance happening in Chicago. So my wife and I are currently trying to plan so we can be there. And we're taking along a couple of her cousins so they can babysit our child while we go out on the town and take in a ballet for the first time in what seems like years. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Well, I can't wait for that. That's going to be awesome. Mm. Well, let's wind the clock back a little bit. Um, would you mind just telling us a little bit about your background, your getting into ballet in the first place and your involvement in founding Ballet 58. Yeah. So for me, ballet is one of those things that I kind of fell in love with from a super early age. Um, as far as we can tell, my parents think I saw a PBS special of the Nutcracker. They're like, we don't know how else you would have found out about ballet because they're not dancers. Um, my dad is a nuclear engineer and my mom is a nurse. So they're like very science and math brains. So having this little girl who was just super excited about the arts and ballet was kind of out of left field, I think a little bit. Um, but it, it was perfect for my personality. I love a challenge. Um, I love to move. And so I think all of that captivated me from a young age. Um, and I love storytelling. I love the art of telling a story really in any format, um, whether it's a book or a movie, a song, a dance. Um, that's something that I've always been drawn to. So ballet is kind of like gymnastics or ice skating. Um, you have to get very serious at a very young age. And so I trained really hard, um, you know, did a lot of the, the ballerina thing, went to a lot of different summer intensives, you know, danced five or six days a week um, growing up. And then I started my first pro, uh, professional contract when I was 16. So that was the first time that I was like making a paycheck to dance, which was pretty cool. Um, but also there's a dark side to dancing too. You know, there's a lot of pressures and there's a lot of influences there, um, you know, that aren't super healthy. It's not everything Hollywood would lead you to believe, but it's also not, um, an environment I think that's terribly nurturing. It's really competitive. So I struggled a lot with, you know, different eating disorders and mental health sorts of issues. And so that was a big part of my story of honestly, why I ended up at Ballet 58. Um, so I kind of left the mainstream dance industry to get healthier. Um, and then as I was being treated and kind of going through the recovery process from a lot of those issues, um, I started going, okay, I wish there was a place that you could dance at a high level, um, but where there was a little bit more to it than just kind of the human body and the competitive nature of the athleticism. What if there was something bigger, a bigger story that we're trying to tell? So from there, that was just kind of an idea. And I went back into dancing and I, you know, recovered, thankfully, and um, ended up dancing after that. But then fast forward a few more years, I moved up here to Chicago, I got married. Um, and that thought was kind of still in the back of my head of like, wait a second, could we do this a little bit differently? You know, is there a different way to treat people? Is there a different way to make art, particularly in this industry that has some kind of uh, glaring flaws? So that led to the founding of Ballet 58 um, as a place to spark discussion of life and faith. Um, I think art is so great at, at kind of digging into what's most important. Um, I think when you take away words, sometimes it helps people to just sit and digest on an emotional level, um, kind of what they're feeling. It's uncomfortable because a lot of us, we don't really love that as humans to just sit with those feelings and, and digest them. But I think art makes it a bit more palatable because you're watching something that's really beautiful and compelling. Um, but you're also able to kind of, I guess, 
taken in in a different way using different senses um, than you would in other mediums. So I think that's something that we lean into at Ballet by Eight is giving people that space um, to kind of sit in the theater for a couple of hours and be embraced by different thoughts and ideas and challenges that they can then kind of um, mull over and cogitate on as they leave the theater. Hmm. I think it's the sort of the th- I think it's the sort of thing that the fox would admit only begrudgingly. He he liked words a little bit more, but we all, we all know it went deeper than that. So that was the ballet side of things. What about C.S. Lewis? Where has he fitted in and how did he then start getting grafted into your uh, work in ballet? Yeah, so I read Lewis for the first time as I think probably a middle school student. I read The Chronicles of Narnia, right? Kind of your classic first experience there. Um, And I loved it. You know, I really loved everything about it. I think it captured my mind and imagination in a way that not a lot of other books had. Um, You know, and I read a lot. I was, uh, I grew up in a classical schooling system. So the kind of school of thought there was that literature teaches you how to understand the world. And so I've read, you know, basically every great book that there is to read out there, you know, everything that's a classic piece of literature um, I read. And that wasn't even a choice. That was just school, right? I just, that was just the way I was educated. Um, I wish I would have appreciated it a little more when it was, you know, something that was pushed upon me. But now as an adult, it's like, wow, what an experience, you know, to read Beowulf um, and to have that underpinning, right? The Iliad and the Odyssey starting all the way back there um, and going through, you know, to the present day. So Anyway, I think literature is something that I've always loved and was trained to kind of love and understand. And I think Lewis, for me, always has shined a light um, on things that I couldn't quite put together myself. And so reading his books, every time I've read Mere Christianity or God in the Dock or, you know, The Great Divorce, like over and over again, I I go, oh, my goodness, like, that's exactly it. Like, I've, I've been there. I feel seen when I read Lewis. I feel... Um, like I understand the world better when I read Lewis. And so I, I've just been an avid fan and reader ever since, you know, I have my little daily readings with C.S. Lewis right there next to my Bible and my journal. Um, and so I think Lewis has been, you know, in some, in some kind of a way, a mentor to me almost and the way of thinking and the way of digesting the world. Um, I've formed my worldview a lot um, from reading his books and his essays. So yeah, I just really have loved him for a long time. I think dance is one of those mediums that is not really great, honestly, at telling a big story. It's very hard to capture like a lot of time and space and information in dance. But on the flip side, it's actually really easy to tell the emotional depth of a story maybe easier than it is to do that in any other medium because the physical side of dance gives you all that physical um, context, I guess, to how somebody's feeling. And when we're excited, right, it's like we have a different physicality than like when we're frustrated or depressed. And so I think in that sense, Lewis's kind of brilliant words that he creates and his word pictures translate really well into this physical language of dance. What's interesting is that this season we've been going through Out of the Silent Planet and we have repeatedly commented on the relationship between physicality and spirituality, physicality and emotion and the connection between the two, often harking back to Screwtape's words about the patient and his posture during prayer, making him think that it's not important, uh, whereas the relationship between body, soul and spirit are incredibly important. But your interest in Lewis hasn't just been reading. You've adapted several of his works to 
the ballet stage. You've mentioned the uh, the great divorce before. You've spoken about the four loves. Um, I think uh, meditation in a tool shed. Do you mind just talking a little bit about your earlier adaptations of Lewis's work, and then we'll move on to till we have faces. Yeah. So I think um, adapting Lewis's work. The first few times I did it, I think was just very exciting, but maybe a little overwhelming because there's so much brilliance in what he has already written and trying to capture all of that, um, especially when you're not using words, when you're just trying to kind of transmit an idea and an emotion um, is a big daunting task. So I think the more I've done it, the more comfortable I've become with, you know, his language and his thoughts, because in a brilliant way, you know, Lewis tends to take a thought and build on it right in his other books and build on it. And so you get these recurring themes. So I've actually built up like a whole language around Lewis um, in terms of ballet vocabulary and like, how do we translate these thoughts and these ideas into not just dance, but also the lighting and the set design and kind of the way that we work the stage. So I think in a very interesting way, my Lewis ballets have compounded on one another to kind of create this really interesting and rich and deep world um, that my dancers are even familiar with. You know, they're like, okay, you know, when we do a Lewis adaptation, like we know here are some of the things that really work in that context that read well to the audience. And then we're able to kind of push deeper and further into that every time we adapt one of his works. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So let's talk specifically about Till We Have Faces. What's sort of the process that you go through taking a book and converting it into a ballet? What, what did you do? At, you've mentioned a little bit about building upon your pre-existing vocabulary. Would you mind just talking us through the whole process of taking a book to uh, a full ballet? Yeah. So I think the first thing for me is just to read the story and take a lot of notes. Um, I think I'm on my 13th rereading of Till We Have Faces currently. So it's an um, ongoing process. I mean, the premieres in a month, but I'm still rereading it because there's just so much depth and goodness in the story. So I think that's a big part of it for me is not just reading it once or twice, but feeling like I'm so deeply acquainted with the work that I could almost, you know, start quoting it back verbatim. Um, and then within that, you know, I take copious notes on every chapter, every character, every part of the development. Um, I've got like these long things about Trom, you know, here's Trom, here's everything we know about Trom, um, from the emotional kind of part of him to the teeny tiny glimpses we get into his backstory, um, to even just like, what does he feel like, right? It's like he has this very foreboding physical presence he's spoken of as like very big and strong and um, kind of a, a man's man and, you know, taking all of those little tidbits about him and writing it down. Um, and I do that for everybody, Orwall, Psyche, Grey Mountain God. Um, I make sure that I have like as many of the details, the little details that I can that, you know, sometimes when you're reading, you just pass on by it. But for this purpose, mm -hmm. I have to kind of lock into all those elements. Um, and then the world of Gloam itself, you know, there's a lot of sights and sounds, um, smells even that are described in the book that are very key. One of them is like the wailing, the sound of crying and wailing that comes back again and again to Orwell. Um, so that's a big theme in the show because that kind of triggers her journey of when her mother dies as a little girl. And then that kind of opens the portal, if you will, into the journey that Orwell goes on. 
Um, so there's a lot of that sort of kind of digesting. And um, I, I call it my squirrel phase where I kind of like gather everything that I can out of the book and categorize it so that it's there in the creative process. Um, I try to talk to a lot of people about the book. Um, I know Andrew Lazo has been a guest of yours frequently and you graciously shared him with us. Co-host. Oh my goodness. That's right. Yeah. In the new season, he is a co-host. I know I'm still listening to season three voraciously, as I told you <laughs> again and again, because it's been, it's been super helpful to digest. But um, anyway, so yeah, talking to him, Crystal and David Downing, you know, just as many people as I can that are um, really experts on Lewis. Um, and I, I just know they have so much to offer and kind of figuring out what they think is kind of the important bullet points, if you will. Um, because I think in a ballet, you obviously want to have your main points really clearly laid out. So it's like those main themes for Orwell and for Psyche and for the story itself, those have to kind of hit first, if you will, in the process. So I have to make sure that those are there and understandable. And then from there, you can build around it and add some more of the flourishes and like, you know, kind of the the fluffier sides of things can come after that. But you have to make sure the main points of the story um, are clear and that those are kind of the skeleton, if you will, of putting the ballet on stage. Um, so yeah, lots of research there. And then the dancers honestly are very helpful too. Um, we actually have like a feelings wheel, which is kind of a funny thing to say, but if you've ever seen one of those from like therapy, it has all the different emotions and like the key emotions that we experience, right. Are like fear and sadness and love and the, all these things, but then it'll split it out and splinter it out into like, okay, you know, fear can then become this like vulnerability, right. It's like a deeper, different form of fear. And so we go through every character and we look at the scene that they're in. It's like, okay, Orwell, where does she go in this scene, right? She goes from this feeling to this feeling to this feeling. So it's kind of like an emotional arc tracker for every part of the story that helps us to link where they are at the beginning from the end of the scene, um, which I think helps to make a cohesive thread through what they're experiencing. And because mm -hmm. Till We Have Faces is so much about love, there's a big thread of, okay, where's Storgi in the positive and then the shadow side? You know, where's Philia in the positive and in the shadow side, where's Eros, right? Positive and shadow, agape, same thing. Um, so we're trying to figure out the different elements of love and where it comes in. And I think when you figure all of that out, it's easier to, to kind of understand, okay, Bardia in this moment is embodying kind of, you know, the beautiful side of Philia and how he takes care of Orwell. And then in this part, Orwell's embodying the kind of dark side of Philia where she just uses Bardia for everything that he is and um, doesn't even realize she's using him up until he's gone, you know? Those sorts of threads, I think, are really helpful because we have to develop those from the beginning of the story. So like in the book, mm -hmm. you know, Orwell's this terrible, unreliable narrator that kind of spins you this tale that you then find out is false. But in the ballet, there's not really a good way to do that without just confusing the snot out of everybody. So you have to keep her as the unreliable narrator. But in the background of the show, you have to be seeing people for who they truly are the whole time. So then when it flips around at the end, it makes a lot more sense. Um, so we have to kind of rat Orwell out a little bit earlier than you would in the book so that the audience can see her and how she's manipulating the cast as we go through the story. Mm. Yes, because in the text, there are, there are lots of hints as you go through that maybe she's oh, yeah. not telling us everything. Um, I did wonder how, how you're going uh, to achieve that. That's interesting. Have there been any particular difficulties in bringing this uh, into a ballet? Oh, yeah. Oh, so many, you know. <laughs> 
so many. Um, and I think they've been good challenges. But yeah, I was telling the cast, like right now, we have about three hours of material, which is far too long for the final presentation. Um, and so what's been good about it is I think I've made more material for this than any show I've ever worked on. And I've already done one round of edits, right? And so paring it down and distilling it into just the essentials, I think has been one of the biggest challenges. Um, because it's like, I could hang out forever just like on Trom and the new queen and how does the new queen feel? And what does this look like for her? Right. But for the sake of the story, I can't stick there and tell you a ton about her. I just have to give you her bullet points. So you understand Psyche a little bit better when we get, cause Psyche's her daughter. So anyway, just going through all of that and making sure that I'm spending time on the important things and we're not getting like lost in the weeds a little bit of the subplots and the smaller characters as fun as they are. And as rich as we want their backstory to be like the main bulk of the story can't be spent on them. So I think that's been one of the biggest challenges is um, I get like really excited about telling all these little nuances. And I think sprinkling enough in that if you've read the book and if you're a Lewis fan, you see it and you're like, oh, I see what she did there. But then if you're brand new to the story, I don't want you to get lost in all these subplots and not like follow the arc that Orwell is on because at the end of the day, it's really her story and everything else has to serve that purpose. Um, you have to understand kind of her journey that she goes on. Um, I think one of the other challenges has just been to figure out how to give you that long of a, a time span because it's her whole life. Like the book goes through her entire life and she does fast forward a large chunk of her reign as queen. Even in the book, she's like, you know, I did a bunch of things and this and that. And it's just like a paragraph that takes you through a big chunk of her life. Um, but on stage, like adapting that has been interesting. So we've actually come up with like a fast forwarded sequence of Orwell's life where we're like creating her life, but then we just speed it all up and move it through. So on stage, you're watching like this big changeover and you see like little bits and pieces here and there of her life. And you watch her kind of suck the life out of Bardia and the Fox telling all of that, but speeding it up so that it, it feels like the book does. And it also gives us that added element of not needing to spend, you know, four hours telling you how Bardia, you know, then ends up dying right from all of this. Um, so yeah, those have been challenging. I think also like one of the bigger challenges that I put on myself even is we're trying to stay away from like classic ballet storytelling. So in ballet, there's like these little overused tropes of like love, you know, and like dance, you like do these little hand things, marriage, you know, all of that. Um, is fine. And in like Giselle or Le Corsair, you lean heavily into that pantomime to tell your story. But I don't think it's particularly relatable to a 21st century audience because all that pantomime is from classic Greek theater, which a lot of people are not in touch with that, understandably, right? It's kind of a, a part of art that is there. It's undergirds a lot of theater. But I think for many people that go to the theater, they're not familiar with that. So that doesn't mean anything to them. It just looks like you're waving your arms around. Um, so trying to tell the story while ditching some of those classic ballet idioms has been a really fun challenge. But I'll be honest, like there's a couple scenes like Psyche and Orwell in the mountain. In rehearsal today, we're going into take 10. This will be the 10th time that we've re-choreographed that scene, which is great, you know, and I love it. I love the challenge of like, okay, that was close, but not it. We got to keep going. We got to strike this. We got to do this better, you know? Um, but yeah, it's very much like writing a novel and like the drafts and the editing process and, you know, distilling it down. It does feel like writing a book just in people instead of pages. Hmm. 
Well, you've spoken a good deal about the choreography. What about the other elements of the production, lighting and scening, etc.? Yeah, so the the lighting I love. I love lighting design. I love how interesting, you know, you can make things when you have the light kind of set to tell the story as well. So one cool thing is that Orwall is it covered in this light that's called gaslight green, which is just comical considering how much she gaslights the reader in the book. Um, but yeah, so she kind of has with like envy. Exactly. Yeah. And it's just this pale green, but it kind of makes her look rather sickly and tallow, which helps because the dancer playing her, you know, Orwell's not supposed to be very beautiful. <laughs> All the dancers are beautiful in Ballet 58. We don't have any ugly people to cast. So it kind of helps on that too. It makes her look a little bit more foreboding and, and a little bit sick and creepy, which is good. Um, so that's one lighting element we're pulling in. <laughs> And then we've got really cool things like we've created this whole world of the minds, which I think is probably one of my biggest adaptations from the book. The minds are kind of talked mm. about as this place you get sent as a punishment. Um, but the way that we're painting the city of Gloam is we've actually made the entire village in the mines. So the villagers are all mm. miners in our version of the story, um, which was a cool way to adapt and condense a lot of the material. Um, and just a fun like way for the audience to experience Trom and his family kind of live on the castle above the people and everybody else lives below them down in the dirt. So we've used a lot of interesting lighting elements to create like these shafts of light all over the stage where it looks like you're down in this dark mine. And then that's where the plague happens in the book is in the mine. And so there's like lots of really cool um, staging elements, I think, that bring it to life. Um, we also have like this fascinating design where we have big set pieces that revolve and on different sides, you can see different things. So like one scene that is really, really cool is there's one side that's uh, Psyche's palace. And then the other side is just like grass and trees. And so I'm sure you know where I'm going with this, but we can rotate it. And so when Psyche is talking to the audience, it looks like she's on a palace, but we rotate it back and then we've staged it. So Orwell only sees it when it's the foliage side. So then the audience is seeing it and they understand what Psyche's talking about, but Orwell doesn't. And so that's been a really cool device and it makes it easy to tell that part of the story um, that would be really hard to do with just the dance. And then the last thing I'll talk about is the um, projections. So there's a lot of projections. So I think it reads a bit like a movie at times because the mirror in the pillar room is all pre-recorded. And so whenever Orwell's looking into that mirror, um, it's actually projected. So she'll look upstage, she'll be back to the audience, but then she'll see the mirror there and then the audience will be able to see that. So that's a really cool storytelling device um, that we bring back over and over again to kind of reveal Orwell's inner conflict. Love it. I love it. It's funny when you were talking about the mines, it just popped into my head. I never thought of it before uh, that for Trom, it was seen as a path to death, but Orwell actually reforms it and makes it a means of redemption for people when they are punished, that the mines are actually the very means by which they regain their liberty, that they descend like Orwell does, but they ultimately come back up again. Hmm. I'll have to message Andrew that so he can put it in his book and not credit me. That's what I love it. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. That's like one of Orwell's one of her good things that she does is the mind. So anyway, it's like interesting. That's like one of her big bright points and all the weird stuff she does. Well, this has been great. So recap. Uh when are you uh presenting this ballet? Where's it gonna be? What are the details that people need to know? And also how did they get tickets? 
Yeah, great question. So our tour starts on March 11th. We're going to be in Canton, Michigan, which is just outside Detroit. Um, and then we'll be in Atlanta, Georgia on March 24th. We'll be in Troy, Ohio, which is near Dayton on April 15th. And we'll be here in Chicago on April 22nd. And you can get tickets for all of the shows at ballet58.org. Um, and yeah, there's a lot of really cool promotions going on right now for tickets. Um, so if you jump on there, you sign up for our email list, um, you can even get some discount codes and, and make sure you bring your friends with you. Wonderful stuff. And uh, if my wife and I manage to get suitably organized and have a babysitter, uh, I might have some uh, Pints with Jack stickers and coasters. So if you see me in the audience, come and tap on my shoulder and you'll get some free stuff. <laughs> Oh, I love that. Yeah, I hope we're able to make all that happen. That would be great. Is there anything else you want to say before we wrap up? No, I think that's all on my end. Thanks so much, David. I appreciate it. You're very welcome. All viewers, join us again next time when we'll continue going further up and further in. Cheers. <laughs>